It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. On Commons People This Week. This was a major breach of trust, and, and I'm really sorry that this happened. Do I not like that? The dark arts of political advertising on Facebook revealed. Now, will the minister tell me at what point our fishermen became a bargaining chip, or has that been the case all along? There's something fishy about the Brexit transition deal. Yes, I think the comparison with, with 1936 is, is certainly right. And what is it with former London mayors and Hitler? All of this and more on Commons People. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast with me, Owen Bennett. And this week I'm joined by Rachel Wearmouth. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Owen. Hi. Hello, Mr. Paul Wall. How are you? Hello, fine. And hello, Ned Simons. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm looking forward to this week's show. Good. Good quiz coming. Oh, no. Good. Oh, yeah. There's not, though. Last week's quiz was brilliant, I'll have you know. Anyway, let's move on, shall we? It's the story which has dominated much of the news this week, but perhaps has left more questions than answers. Did political consultancy firm Cambridge Analytica harvest data for millions of Facebook users to help Trump win the US election? Did the UK-based company play any role in the Brexit vote? Does it have any links to the Tory party? Well, before HuffPost UK's tech editor Tom Tamblin, hello, Tom. Hello. Hello. Explains just what the hell happened. Here's Cambridge Analytica's chief exec, Alexander Nix. It's difficult to say all these. There's a lot of X in this. Talking about the company's role in the Trump election. Have you met with Mr. Trump? Many times. You have? We did all the research, all the data, all the analytics, all the targeting. We ran all the digital campaign, the television campaign. And our data informed all the strategy. Tom, so talk me through this. This was an app. A, a, a personality app which yeah. tested what gullibility by the sounds of things it seems <laughs> like yes what well, go on just yeah so I'll, I'll go th- the easiest way to do this is go through like a really brief timeline and a quick timeline on this yes. so in 2013 the uh, academic alexander uh, kogan created this quiz called this is your digital life and like all of those quizzes that you had on facebook um it asked you to sign into facebook when you entered the quiz Now, when you signed in, you consented to hand over your data. And because of Facebook's uh, data sharing policy, you also actually shared the data of your friends as well, probably without realizing. Although it was mentioned in the consent form how you would share your data. So if you and I were friends on Facebook, and we're not, yeah. <laughs> uh, and you did this quiz, because you would, yeah. Um, Thank you. they know all about like my birthday and the fact that I really like the Beatles now. No, it would, so we don't know the precise amount of information that was actually shared, but it, it could range from as kind of in-depth as your exact birthday to as light, you know, top level as simply what you liked, Um what posts you liked and what inter- interests you have. Um, so 270,000 people downloaded this app. And because of the way that Facebook shares the data, that then ballooned into 50 million people's information. And at the time, it's completely consensual. 
It's absolutely fine for an academic to use that. Where it starts to get a little murky is that in 2015, The Guardian tells Facebook that Kogan has actually given this data to Cambridge Analytica. And that's where that's where we start to see the controversy develop because he shouldn't have done that. Um, Facebook then claims that it demanded that both Kogan and Cambridge Analytica should delete all their data and bans both of them. Uh, we hear nothing for the next three years. And then I think last week or whenever it was, we have the big expose from The Observer and The Guardian saying that actually they didn't delete the, the data and they may have actually used it to help them in things like the UK referendum and the uh, US election. And this is where we are now. Um, one thing to note is that actually Facebook claims that it, it put safeguards in place back in 2014 to fix all this. So actually the, the amount of data that was shared back then would have not been possible to share from 2014 onwards. So Facebook is in essence having to clear up a mess that was made so many years ago and actually it's sort of already fixed. And, and by putting that safeguard in place in 2014, it's therefore acknowledging that something wasn't happening that should have been happening because why else did you put a safeguard in place? Potentially, yeah, absolutely. And And one of the things that Zuckerberg mentioned in his statement was that because the safeguard was put in place all those years ago, a lot of people will be protected from that point onwards, but they are going to have to start doing a massive investigation into apps pre-2014 that potentially would have used the data and how they use the data and whether they deleted it appropriately after they finished with it. The political analysis of this, poll it seems to me that looking at what this analysis was used for, people are getting annoyed because politicians are targeting what they want i just can't get i get the kind of almost the illegal point of it more than i get the immoral point of it well there are two separate issues which are often conflated one is the legality or illegality of of breaching data rules and privacy rules about you know sharing my information with someone else um so that's one thing facebook are obviously really worried about and are stressing that you know they they locked the stable door after the whole bolted in 2014, but for a year it was running around. Uh, we don't know that, but the, so that's one issue. Then you come to the whole issue of well, did any of this make any difference in the Brexit referendum? Did it make any difference in uh, in the U.S. election? And I think the the reason that that is a political issue and is a difficult one is because both were really tight races. So. Although, I mean, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, don't forget. And that's how close it was, but she lost the election. She lost the election because in key seats, a few thousand votes here and there made all the difference. Literally 40,000 votes in three states, which gave Trump... And so that's obviously why people are interested in this. No one's suggesting that this has a massive impact. It might have had an impact at the margins, but the margins are where some of these things really matter. And the Brexit referendum is more difficult to argue because even though it was only, it was 52%, 48%, that's still a massive big, you know, you're talking about a million voters, really, are the difference. It's not just a few thousand. But only 600,000 to vote the other way, doesn't it? Because it was a one Yeah, but that's still a lot of people, you know, and no one's suggesting 600,000. So that's why I think it matters. That's why everyone's, you know, worried about it, talking about it. About it, but conflating those two issues is is perhaps the wrong thing to do. And all, don't forget, there's also there's ethical considerations as well as legal ones. You know, was was Facebook acting ethically? Were these campaigns acting ethically? Before we come on to uh, the kind of how it's landed with the Tory Party here, Rachel. I mean, some people would say if you put this stuff up online, I mean, I don't want to say you're asking for it, but 
You're kind of asking for what, it. Invading right? your own privacy. Well, you put the, all this information up online, and it's really bad. I mean, one of the things that Trump said is that the Cambridge Analytica came up with the phrase "drain the swamp," and he didn't like the phrase, but he said it at a rally, and everyone went crazy. They loved it. I mean, that is just smart political campaigning. That's just trying to find out what people want. People have been doing that for years and years and years. Why is this any different? Because you don't, I don't think you expect it to be shared as widely as it was. But I also think it, the interesting part of it is it kind of feeds into how tech giants are treating everyone more generally. Mm. When you think about working conditions at Amazon, um, when you think about the minimal number, minimal amount of tax that Google pays, I think it, it's all part of that one thing of are we being treated fairly by these massive companies who are making a huge profit out of using our details. Yeah, and they do, don't forget, they, one of the American uh, congressmen said the other day that, you know, they don't see themselves as companies, they see themselves as countries, people like Facebook and Google, you know, that as if they're above the law. And finally, the law, data law, tax law is catching up with them. And I think they're beginning to see that if, if advertisers are pulling out, if their business model, if the bottom line is really affected, that's when they get worried. Before we uh, listen to Ian Blackford and PMQs, always worth the wait, um, Tom, we know the Facebook shares dropped. We know that Zuckerberg has had to issue a sort of mealy-mouthed apology on this. We know MPs want to call him before the select committee. Is this... Are people really going to delete Facebook? I mean, but a lot of people I speak to actually, to say a lot of younger people don't use Facebook, do they? It's people perhaps of my generation, in my 30s, who got into it when I was at uni and it's sort of habitual to me. But people in their early 20s are shunning it for Instagram, Twitter, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... While we do see these trends, delete Facebook and kind of the backlash against it, we do also have to see the wider picture here of just the sheer number of human beings that are actually connected to Facebook. Um, it's billions. And when you look at going forward, what what is going to happen, I think, I think Facebook is obviously doing a lot of backtracking. But what people generally really want is just to have the, the safety and the knowledge that what they're sharing will benefit them in a way that's moral and good. Like we, Most people have no issue with advertisers collecting small anonymous bits of information to make sure that when you go onto Twitter, you see an advert for something that actually genuinely interests you. Like No one really gets upset about that. And if you do, there are ways to get rid of it. But I think the main conversation here going forward will be making sure that that conversation is open and vocal and people actually understand. Like, I mean, I had to write an explainer on how to get to your privacy settings. And it was actually, while Facebook says they've done a lot, it was still fairly difficult to really dive into how much information you're sharing. And one of the things we've seen is Zuckerberg has said that going forward, he's going to put some of those settings right onto the homepage the moment you log in, and you'll be able to see them straight away. And I think that's the direction we'll be we'll be seeing. Um, let's listen to Ian Blackford, who's the SNP's leader in Westminster, in PMQs this week, to see whether or not... Uh, Theresa May has any questions to answer, and here's her response uh, to it as well. Here we go. The parent company of Cambridge Analytica is Strategic Communications Laboratories. It has been run by a chairman of Oxford Conservative Association. Its founding chairman was a former Conservative MP. A director appears to have donated over £700,000 to the Tory party. A former Conservative Party treasurer is a shareholder. We know about the links to the Conservative Party. They go on and on. Will the Prime Minister confirm to the House her governance connections to the company? Can 
I say, um, the Right Honourable Gentleman has been talking about two companies, about the parent company, SCL, and uh, he also referred to Cambridge Analytica. Uh, I can say to him that, as far as I'm aware, the government has no current contracts with uh, Cambridge uh, Analytica or with the, uh, with the SCL group. Lots of links there, sort of circumstantial, you would say, in a court of law about between the Tories and Cambridge Analytica. It doesn't mean necessarily that the Tories... I mean, what, 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 what's the, the claim with the Tories? Are they u- the parent company of Cambridge Analytica, a company called SCL, do have links with the Tories and Tory donors. And there's a general smell that the SNP and Labour, let's be honest, are trying to uh, shift on to the Conservatives. Now, um, Number 10 told us in the week that actually, yes, there are three government departments that have contracts with this parent company, SCL, the Foreign Office, the Home Office and the MOD. But all of those contracts were awarded under Labour uh, in, the late, in the Gordon Brown. Um, now, they continued and none of them continued. Uh, none of them are current. They ended relatively recently in one of them. But so in terms of saying it's just a Tory thing, the Tories are obviously very worried because they were approached, we found out this week, by Cambridge Analytica ahead of the, next general ele- the last general election. Um, before it was even set in stone as a snap election, they approached the Tories. And now... May's people say, well, that was under David Cameron. You know, there was just scoping out what could the next election be like. And as soon as Theresa May has arrived, then we said, no, we're not having anything to do with you. I'm not sure how deliberate that was and whether it was just because they didn't like the cut of Cambridge Analytica's jib or whatever. But so so far, there's no smoking gun. But what is interesting is just how embedded into political life uh, people like Cambridge Analytica and SCL are. I mean, we did a story yesterday on the fact that um, at the Foreign Office, a, a special Foreign office, office conference last year, one of these guys who was exposed by Channel 4 News made a presentation on the Trump's use of data. And you have all these Foreign Office officials gathered around just listening to him intently. And this is the guy who says, I'm a master of disguise. This is a guy whose pal talks about, you know, dirty tricks and prostitutes. So obviously the Foreign Office would be slightly worried about that. But what's interesting, we, we I've, I found the, the subsequent report of that meeting and the Foreign Office official is suitably sceptical. And he basically has a line about, well, we've got to, we've got to just reserve judgment as to how much of an impact on the election this stuff has and while the front office is really into data don't forget the front office is one of the most digital first whitehall departments that there is um they uh, obviously weren't totally convinced by what they heard excellent that's great thanks so much tom for coming in really appreciate that always good to have you here for tech stories thanks and make sure me. make sure everyone that you follow us on facebook you can like us and all that kind of stuff right absolutely we still love facebook don't we yeah absolutely good thank you tom <laughs> Let's move on to Brexit now. And it turns out that if you avoid the really difficult stuff, negotiations can be quite simple. David Davis and Michelle Barnier revealed on Monday that a post-March 2019 transition deal between the UK and the EU had been agreed. The EU will accept all the rules of the single market and customs union until December 31st, 2020. Any EU citizens arriving in the UK during the transition period will get the same rights they receive now. The UK secured a victory by getting Brussels to agree they could negotiate and crucially sign trade deals in anticipation of leaving the bloc properly at the end of 2020. The issue of the border with Ireland was, as expected, kicked even further down the road. But the most controversial part of the agreement was on fishing, as the EU will still get to set the terms of the UK's fishing quotas during transition. Here's DEFRA Secretary Michael Gove 
not exactly dialing down the sense of frustration. So the first thing I, I will uh, happily acknowledge is that there is disappointment in fishing communities. I know, um, as someone whose father was a fish merchant um, and whose grandparents uh, went to sea to fish, I completely understand how fishing communities feel about the situation at the moment. I share their disappointment. That was all too much for some Brexiteers, and Nigel Farage took to the high seas, well, the Thames, to highlight the anger in the fishing community by throwing Haddock into the river. Here's Farage explaining his actions. And the plan, of course, was that Jacob Rees-Mogg and some fellow Tory Brexiteers were going to board the boat, if you remember, and chuck the fish back into the Thames. But I sat in my office this morning in Westminster watching all this on cable television um, and I saw that they weren't boarding the boat and that they weren't going to throw the fish back. So I got a call from Fishing for Leave. Would I come down and lend a hand? I was saying there he would come down and lend a hand. What a generous man Farage is to step in front of the limelight. Imagine when he found out there was another flotilla he must have been between him and that boat. I mean, I didn't, I didn't go out. Because I was on the last one. I think I just went out of protest. <laughs> this was sort was of nothing. The, yeah, this was kind of the poor, poor version of it. Let's, let's, let's talk about fishing because it's kind of, it's been on the boil for a while. This, uh, that wasn't the pun, by the way. But what, what fish are you boiling? No, 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 no the, the issue, right? Right. Fishermen are annoyed about it because yeah. they're like, you said we'd get out of this nonsense and we're not. And I love the fact that we've had a lot of people who support Remain in the SNP going, you sold out our <laughs> fishermen. And they go, well, you want to keep us in the common fisheries policy because you want us to stay in the EU. Yeah, it, the whole kind of argument's a bit ludicrous in, in that sense. Um, obviously, fishermen aren't happy, but Michael Gove was making the point that, you know, the bigger picture is that, you know, 20 months down the line, we will get it back. And he was quite clear in the comments saying, no, once we leave the transition period, then we'll have control. But they obviously felt they had to give up this bit to get the, the right to trade globally. So it, it, I did find it a bit odd that if you care that much about the fishing industry, does 20 months make a massive difference if the end result is what you want? I'm not sure. Well, that's the big question. Will the end result be what they uh, want? Sure. And, and, and I think that... Um, they, a lot of those Tory MPs who represent fishing constituencies, mm. they went in to see the PM for literally, I think it was 15 minutes. Yeah. It was originally said it would be 10 minutes, but apparently it was really only, it was 15 <laughs> minutes. And then everyone shoot, shot out because there was an urgent question in the Commons that they had to attend. Michael Gove, as you say, um, talked about keeping your eyes on the prize, mm. boys. Um, so fish to fry some, might Exactly. Say. Now, but, um, so they've been bought off temporarily. You know, they're, they're, they're all very... Um, vociferous in saying look we can't stand this and then they saw the PM and number 10 put the frighteners on them and the whips and basically they backed off and but on the promise that when the final deal happens they really will be mm. taking back control no, but it just exposes that phrase taking back control in many ways how elastic it is because either it, it can mean really taking control and imposing your own qu quotas and saying no more fish in our seas or it can mean actually we'll just continue to do a new negotiation where we're in the driving seat but actually we might not really be because we'll give something I, I away. Rachel this all comes down doesn't it to a question of trust. Michael Gove is standing up and saying to people Trust me, Michael <laughs> Gove is standing up and saying that to people. Is that going to carry a lot of weight, do you think? Do you think a lot of MPs are going to, are going to believe him? Um, I suspect not, is the answer to that question. Uh, what I found really interesting about it was um, the Scottish Tories. Um, they're kind of really starting to show their teeth a little bit now. And that's mainly because they've won a lot of seats in the northeast of Scotland, a lot of fishing communities, a lot of... And if there are many Scottish Brexiteers, you would find them in those areas. Um, and I think they've taken a lot of criticism from the SNP for 
not doing anything in terms of Brexit and just kind of sitting back and watching it all unfold. So I think it's, it's interesting that they're starting to make themselves known. Now, this is the place in the show when we do the oh, quiz. I didn't take too long to bring up the topic for this week. Oh, God, you're probably thinking, I've had enough of these fish funds. Well, don't tune it out now. I promise these questions will be easy to solve. Help me. A load of old pollocks. Yeah, okay. right? yeah, 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 that's good. Cheers, mate. Yeah. Uh, so, the UK caught 700,000 tonnes of fish in 2016. Name the fish. No, um, I want one. you to tell me if the following countries caught more or less okay. than that, okay? Uh, Do we have two options? I, d- I didn't have time to come up with them. Lame. Um, too so much time on puns. Too much time on puns. I spent a lot of time crafting yeah. the program. So, Denmark. Did Denmark uh, catch more or less fish in 2016 in the mm. UK? Mr. Paul War. Well, if you look at a map, Denmark's fishing water is obviously smaller than Britain's, right? Because it's a smaller country. So you, you're leading us down the route of saying, oh, not as many. But maybe they've just got a better funded, long lasting fishing industry. So I'm going to go say, I'm going to go off piece and say higher. Higher, uh, higher than Britain. Lower. Lower. I think, I think higher as well. It's lower. Oh. They caught 670,000 tonnes. Close. But in 2005, they caught 911,000 compared to the UK's 665,000. Hmm. So it was higher so right, 11 right. years ago. But it's, but the question was 2016, mm. so you're wrong. Okay. Uh, France? Uh, less. Paul? I'd say more than Britain. I'm going to go higher as well. You're wrong. 525,000. Hmm. Uh, Spain? Viva España. <laughs> Was that your attempt at Spanish? Surely it's bigger, because they're always moaning about the Spanish fishermen. And they're, they're a peninsula and they've got big waters. And Let's say more than Britain. I'd say more. I'm gonna, everyone always moans about it being Spanish fishermen and that being a thing, so I'm going to say less. It is more. Uh, 860. I put million, but I didn't right. mean that. I mean a thousand. Uh, Iceland. Oh, no, that's a good one. It is a good one, Paul. Um... Mad. You, you're well, all too young. You don't remember the Cod Wars no. between Iceland and Britain <laughs> yeah. in the 70s. In, uh, I know, but I'm, you weren't even born, were you? No, I no. wasn't. Paul. But the Cod Wars was a but, thing. Okay, Granddad, tell us what did you do during the Cod Wars? <laughs> what, what did you do? I, I read it in the paper as a kid. Um, I'm going to say Iceland. I'm going to say Iceland's bigger. Yeah. More, more. yeah, one point zero seven million. I keep, keep thinking it's going to be like a trick question. Yeah. It never is. Uh, Sweden. Uh, long Ned's uh, look then oh listener if you can see Ned's little face then as his eyes rolled almost back off his head (laughs) just the tedium of what I asked him to think about come on Ned more I'm going to say more because they eat more fish than we do more as well. No, less. 198,000 tonnes. Oh, wow. I know. It's nothing, Paul, is it? I could do that. Isn't that the home of sort of smoked different bits of fish as well? But there's not that many Swedes, is there? Compared to... No, but it's catchy, not eating. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, yeah. and finally... You don't want to catch more than you can eat. God, I'm bored of this. Norway. <laughs> Wait, I used to do a fish quiz. Norway's got to be more than us. It's got a much longer coastline. Um, it? Yeah, more. But you don't care, do you? <laughs> you you don't give a monkeys about this. Honestly, it's more. 1.8. Yes. God. Wow, million. that's yeah, massive. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Wow. It's Norway's good at the, That's why they won't join the single market. Smorgish bird. There we are. Oh, no, oh, that makes Sweden. Sense. Anyway, right. That's this week's quiz. That was a classic. Uh, <sighs> anyway, let's say. move on to Northern Ireland, shall we? Because like I said, the issue's been kicked down the road, but we have someone here who can solve the Irish border issue. Yep. Ms. Rachel Wehmel. Hello. I believe you went over 
to the yes, Emerald it's all Isle. Yes, it's now. No one, and, no one uh, needs to worry. What's happened? What did you find out? Um, well, Bring us, tell us tales from this strange <laughs> land. I went um, to Foyle, which has includes the city of Derry, or London Derry. Um, and it has the largest remain vote in the UK outside of London. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and I spoke to a family that um, basically they live literally on the border. Their, their garden fence is in the EU. It's, it's <laughs> in Ireland. Um, and they have a customs, what was formerly a customs hut, which is now um, a boxing gym, um, just kind of ac- across the road from them. It used to be a customs hut. Their windows got blown out during the troubles because this hut was um, targeted repeatedly. Um, and they just said any physical infrastructure it just won't survive um, if that's what they want to do. But um, they also kind of said there'll also be, regardless of what happens, a, a psychological border. And that's going to be a problem, if not now, in the future. Did you speak to anyone who didn't regard it as a problem? Did you speak to anyone who was optimistic about what the UK government is proposing? Yes, I um, spoke to a young man who runs a website called Unionist Voice. Um, very supportive of the DUP. He's called Jamie Bryson. Um, he campaigned for Brexit precisely because um, it would lead to the end potentially of the Belfast Agreement or the Good Friday Agreement and because it kind of, it all feeds into the same, well not the same, but it all feeds into identity politics um, over there and it kind of bolsters his feelings as as a unionist and being part of the UK and he's determined you know, that he'll continue to campaign for all of the UK to leave the EU on exactly the same terms um, and, he, and he's is, uh, he and um, sort of grassroots unionism are basically what the people who are informing how the DUP behaves throughout this process. That's fascinating. It's a real reality check on actually how we often talk about the DUP and how obstructive they are in Westminster. But actually, it's driven by, as you say, a grassroots, real world, real people uh, concern, which is, you know, they've got all that history, all that baggage. And a lot of people talk up, obviously, without really knowing about the situation on the ground, about we we can't go back to the bad old days. No one wants that. But equally, not many people on the mainland, as we some call it, actually understand why Ulster Unionists are so worried about being members of the EU, but also some of those elements of the agreement, the cross-border flows. Obviously, business likes it, but in terms of identity and, and cultural politics, it's difficult. One of the things that came up, which was which was really interesting, um, a lot of uh, young young people um, feel that there, there will definitely be a poll on a United Ireland in the next Ten years because of Brexit, which I just think is such an such an interesting. That was fascinating when you talked about the border yeah. poll in the piece, yeah. The and they don't know what way it will go because a lot of people who a lot of the young people who are Remainers, um, yeah, they're kind of starting to and, and who who would describe themselves as unionists are, are starting to think again about how the constitution. Well, it's another factor, isn't it? Because it's long been assumed that actually there's a chunk of middle class Catholic or Irish nationalist votes who would never really vote for a United Ireland because of their pockets. But now it's fl- flipped the other way around. There's a lot of, you know, middle class wealthy, um, you know, people from the Protestant background who are saying, hold on a tick, maybe it would be best to stay in. The one thing I did find was 
fascinating your piece, um, Rachel. And read it, everybody. It's online. It's today. Um, Thursday is, for those listening. This is Thursday for those listening. <laughs> um, was when you talked to the people about the practical difficulties of having a hard border. Um, and everyone talks about this at Westminster as if they know what they're talking about. But actually on the ground, you made the point that actually, or the people you were talking to said, look, there is no preparation whatsoever for actually reinstating these huts at the bottom of people's gardens and how difficult most of the land has been bought up so there's a real difficulty in terms of no land or buildings be available for these border checks well how's the crisis again yeah Seamus O'Reilly the guy I spoke to he kind of said if the government were serious about any um, any kind of infrastructure at the border he said people would have turned up at their house they would have had clipboards they would have been sending them surveys they would have been talking about compulsory purchase orders he says they just he just doesn't see them as serious about the whole thing the the Northern Irish uh, border issue was one of the issues raised in our people's negotiation which uh, goes live on HuffPost website from Sunday we asked people to send in videos of what they wanted to see from Brexit with basically a year to go until we officially leave and we went out to some constituencies uh, leave back in constituencies a remain back in constituency and one which was 50-50 to get the views of people there we're running the videos um, all through the week starting on Sunday um, so make sure you log on to our website and tweet us your views hashtag people's negotiation let's move away from Brexit now to Boris Johnson who has said Russia holding the Football World Cup is the same as when Nazi Germany hosted the Olympic Games the foreign secretary said he was deeply concerned about the safety of England fans attending this summer's tournament it's up to the russians to guarantee the safety of england fans going to russia he told the commons foreign affairs committee on wednesday he also revealed the kremlin had expelled the british embassy official who was responsible for the safety of england fans here's boris's exchange with ian austin during his appearance uh, with austin first putin's going to use it the way hitler used the 1936 olympics the idea of putin handing over the world cup to the captain of the winning team. I'm afraid that's completely, me with, right. well, that's completely right. The idea of Putin using this as a PR exercise it's, to gloss over the brutal, corrupt regime for which he's responsible fills me with horror. Uh, first of all, I think that your characterization of uh, what is going to happen uh, in Moscow, in uh, the, the World Cup, or in all the venues, yes, I think the comparison with, with 1936 is, is certainly right. So Boris Johnson there doing his best to smooth things over. But is he right, Paul? Is he right? Is this is this basically the same as as, as Berlin 36? Well, obviously, there's a danger of sounding like Ken Livingstone, isn't there? Um, and I think the real problem with that statement is that Boris is trying to make the case in that select committee that, look, we don't hate the Russian people. We love the Russian people. We want links with links with Russian uh, citizens who want to move here. There's long historic links. Some you know, of his best names are Russian. In fact, these yeah. people, these people are, you know, finally freed from the yoke of communism, and we should be welcoming them. But you can't make. And he was saying that separate to that, what we do hate is Kremlin and Putin. But you can't really make that case if you then talk in any way suggesting that Russia is like. Hitler because 20 million Russians died in the Second World War is deep in the Russian psyche and it's just insulting to them as a nation to in any way suggest they're like Hitler. Now obviously we in the West seriously and me personally obviously think that um, Putin is an autocrat and a dictator and it's a sham election and that the man is a brutal murderer of journalists and of opposition politicians no question in my opinion and we should be robust about that but it's how you express it. He's the Foreign Secretary. Words matter. He knew that. You can't just riff as if you're the Mayor of London. 
And he did give an opening in a sense. The Russian foreign minister, I think maybe about half an hour ago, as we record it, hit back saying, you know, no one gets to lecture Russia on Hitler. You know, we we won the war. And it did give perhaps an opening to Russia to say that. And the other thing in that select committee hearing that was interesting, that he was trying to be quite strong on Russia, saying we've been very strong on what happened. But he was getting quite a hammering from a lot of the MPs, particularly Labour MPs, over how British financial the British financial system is kind of helping Russia bypass sanctions. So beneath this kind of good, important story about the Hitler comment and the World Cup was actually, are we doing enough? And a lot of the MPs have been very critical of the reaction and warning him, you know, don't say all these strong words now and two months down the line, nothing's actually happened in legislation to crack down on Russian, uh, you know, dodgy money or anything. And I think that needs to be kept in mind. Boris being all mouth and no trousers, well, yeah. Can anyone name like a big success that Boris Johnson has had as foreign secretary? Mm, good question, Rachel uh, Wimmer. I mean, I we're just not can't. at war. Yeah, we so yeah. We kind of might. Be. He's just not very good at the job. Wow. Uh, I'll tell, I, I'll, <laughs> right here, I'm going to be controversial. I think one thing he has been good at, and you're going to howl protest just here, Trump. is keeping tabs on Trump and keeping links and channels open with Trump. Because um, you know, at the end of the day, it is in our national interest to keep that relationship going. And he's the one. In a way, it's got him into trouble. There's a subplot over Cambridge Analytica here because he, in his bid to sort of get to know more about Trump, he talked to Alexander Nix, the Cambridge Analytica chief, to try and pump him for information. So, obviously, there are downsides to that. He's got to do a personality quiz. I, <laughs> I, I do sort of agree. I think it's very interesting that how he forged very close links with Rex Tillerson, who is Secretary of State, obviously was fired by Trump, working behind the scenes yep. with the Trump administration, if not Trump himself. And if you look at what below Trump they've said about Russia, it's been quite strong. And since Tillerson was fired, you see him mention Nikki Haley a lot, who's a UN ambassador, whose speech at the UN about, what, about Putin and the allegation he was behind the Salisbury attack was very strong. So you see him trying to work beneath the level of the president to work those connections and, and kind of big up his connections with what he sees as the most important foreign policy person in in Washington that's not the president. And don't forget Iran. You know, one thing that Boris is trying to do and all the other countries are, the, are trying to work this out who are working with America to say don't give up on the Iran nuclear deal that Trump that behind the scenes the Republicans on Congress are, are, are basically saying look this actually looks bad in many ways but there could be it could be the only way we get a proper peace deal with with Iran one thing to remember though of course in Iran is that um, Ratcliffe is still in prison I know uh, so no in answer to your question there, Rachel. Um, now, just very, very quickly as we end, I'm going to set Mr. Paul Water challenge. Can you, I'm going to set you a minute, and a minute only, oh to fill us in on the latest Labour NEC stuff. I know it's something you love to talk about and write about. So if you're going to give us a minute, understand that Jenny Formby is now the new Labour General Secretary. She is. Right. Without hesitation, oh deviation or repetition, <laughs> you have a minute now to tell us what this means for Labour. What it means for Labour is that the left is in control of the party HQ, which has never really been in charge of. And just as it's in charge of the NEC overall, and obviously it's in charge of the, the Shadow Cabinet and the Leader's Office, for the first time you've got the left in a, a very dominant position. However, 
the so-called centrists are still dominating the PLP and certainly still dominating local government. So in that balance of power, it's, it, it matters. And there's been an exodus, as we reported this week, of people who are under the previous regime. Uh, that will matter because they're going to have to get a, a lot of that institutional memory that will be lost. But equally, some of the left-wingers say, look, you know, Tony Blair had never been a minister, had never been in government. It doesn't really matter. You can prepare for government when you don't have to have done it before. Wow. 13, 13 seconds to spare, Paul. Fantastic. There you go. Excellent. Thank you much for listening, everyone. And we will be back. Are we back next week? We will. Yeah, we're back next week. Why, why the hell not? It's why not, the hell not, Ned? It's up to you, really, isn't it? It's up to me. <laughs> it's not recess, is it? is it? I don't know. I mean, you, are you having a recess? I don't know. Are you Shall having I? a personal <laughs> recess, though? Um, what am I doing next week? <laughs> You're not. I'm we'll here. be back, listeners. <laughs> we'll be back. Don't worry. Don't worry, listener. We'll be back. And also, make sure you review us on the old iTunes, whatever, because otherwise people can't find us and people need this in their lives, don't they, Ned? Yeah, don't base a review on the quiz, though. Yeah. Because it's not. I mean, they're not very good. But, right, before we go, what did someone say to you this week at an event? I don't let that start. Did, we run out no, of time. no, no, no. Senior Tory. What did the Senior Tory say to the event this week? Liked the quiz. They liked the quiz. I'll leave you with that. Thank you, listener, and goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.